Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is late August, 2022. Um, we have a guest with us, a repeat guest with us today. Uh, she is Silky Shaw. She's the executive director of Detention Watch Network. Hello, welcome back. Hi, it's good to be back here. Hey, Silky. So where are you, uh, where are you joining us from today? I am at my home in Bellingham, Washington, which is not that far from where Tammy's at. So. Oh, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm close to the Canadian border. Oh, nice. Bellingham. So yeah. nice there. Yeah, my parents are kind of close to there. My sister lives in Mount Vernon. Oh, yeah. Mount um, Vernon's nice. Yeah. There's a really good Mexican restaurant there that oh, I like really? to go to. Mount Vernon is like uh, has a very large Mexican population now. Yeah. Cool. Um, and... There's like you could. I was very surprised when I was visiting my sister because you just expect everything up there to be pretty white, you know, and a lot of like, you know, Western Washington or Washington State. Like you go around and they're like, we have cedar plank salmon, and that's about it, you know. This is the only food that exists in the entire state is salmon, and then you're like, well, it's, it's ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. It's definitely it's, not true of Seattle. That's um, definitely <laughs> true. Seattle, like the only what food are you, you can get, about? you can get like you can get different types of cedar plank salmon. I mean, you know? it's, they're like, it is on this one, we we have an Asian marinade on it. And you're like, wow, it's fucking exotic. You oh know? my god, like, this, this is insane. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do we? fair it's no, kind no. of true of Bellingham. it's absolutely true I, it may be not seattle you know the great cultural hub but it is true of the other places <laughs> in washington state on the coast right it's true and sometimes they give you oysters you know well, that or brew pubs like we have yeah. like right. per capita right just right. That's, it's an, an epidemic it's like a hundred thousand right. people here and there's like we've yeah. thrown some I've, we've thrown some <laughs> ivar's clam chatter into a bread bowl oh, but and I love you can ivar's. also have a side of so asian good. glade salmon <laughs> anyway <laughs> i don't know why i'm talking about this oh anyway, no it's because you know I went to this deli type of thing in near Mount Vernon and they had like a full on like Mexican deli there, you know, with all types of like tamales and salsas and stuff like that. I was surprised, you know, Democrats. Are there enough Mexicans there for there to be like regional Mexican cuisines? What? No, I think so. I I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I mostly cook at home. That's what happens because I live here. <laughs> but when you go to Mount Vernon on your exotic outings, because I feel like that's always the next step when there's so many immigrants in a town that they're like, there's like the Oaxacan restaurant. There's like, you know, oh, so yeah, but that then always they makes to, me really happy. They have to actually come from different parts of, of, uh, yeah. of yeah, Central yeah. and South America. But you get like the critical mass true. and then it spreads a little bit geographically. Yeah, that's sometimes everyone is just from one place. For you sure. Know? Now, yeah. I don't know about Mount Vernon, but I was very impressed. And it was much better than, you know, your typical Pacific Northwest food. Um, I would say Portland's food Portland is Portland is amazing. Yeah, it's like actually you kind of tip your hat to it, even though you don't want to. It's right? the food. Like, you kind of want to be like... I don't know, you dudes are making a whole bunch out of nothing. Portland, like, come on. But it's actually quite good. Anyway, I'm sorry. I don't mean, Vancouver, I mean, the, Vancouver's particularly Vancouver's special. Vancouver's great. Vancouver's great. But that's not in America, you know? I know. But it's of those cities, it is it's very closer close to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, all right. So we brought Sylvia on to talk about two things. First is, um, 
the rehearsal, which is a television <laughs> show with Nathan Field. Is it Fiedler or Fielder? Fielder. Nathan Fielder. Okay. Um, this is a sh- I like that show, Nathan, for you, and I watched some of the rehearsal, so we'll be talking about that. But we mostly brought Silky on to talk about immigration. It's something that we want to you know, cover quite extensively on the show and regularly, and I don't know. We really appreciate the first appearance of Silky on the show, and I think that there's a lot to talk about um, right now, and I think that there's just a lot to talk about because this is no longer something that is front page news all the time, right? Um, and a lot of things are happening, but the media's attention in some ways has drifted away, right? This is not the same as when, you know, we had child separation as front page news every single day. And, um, you know, people are going out, AOC was like going down to the border and there are all sorts of things that are reported that seem, you know, incalculable in some sort of way, or, or at least like unbelievable, right? Unless you actually know what's going on. And so we wanted to bring on someone who actually knows what's going on. Yeah. And so like, we're really, I'm excited about um, that part of the conversation. Not to say that oh, I'm, you know, not to say that I'm not excited to talk about the rehearsal. <laughs> Silky I'm, the TV I'm, critic I'm, first. I'm a little I bit know less. if I have much to say. I'm more curious. I'm a little bit. I'm a little bit less excited to talk about the rehearsal. Okay, so, um, okay. But Danny, May was why, hilariously okay. bringing up that like the rehearsal has rehearsal has like a child separation element. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Silky, why do you like the show, or why why did you end up watching the show, and what did you think about it? Oh, that, that's where we're starting. Okay, we're starting there, and then we're going to immigration. <laughs> Um, I hadn't watched Nathan for you, so I didn't really know what to think, but I, um, well, the first episode, I will say, since we were on the Bellingham kick, I like, you know, I live in this like small city that is not a lot of interesting things to do. So I started playing trivia, um, and I feel like the first episode (laughs) drew me in immediately because I was just like, oh, I really relate to this guy (laughs) and this whole experience is happening. And, um, I, it was, I mean, there was like this moment when they were like, he was just faking this guy out or doing things to guy, like get this guy core skeet to, you know, be prepared for the rehearsal and make sure that he was like, you know, had all the trivia answers and they sort of like walk by, like have these different montage of scenarios. And one of them was like some hostage situation. And the police officer was like, oh, damn, (laughs) damn the Chinese for inventing gunpowder. And it was the most absurd moment. And it just, I, I just like started laughing out loud and I was like, oh, this is clearly doing something for me. Yeah, I I like the show. I didn't think, you know, I liked, I really liked Nathan for you and I was a big fan of it. And then I, at the beginning while watching this show, I was slightly, mildly disappointed because I didn't think it was funny. And I just like, am not, I was like, well, I don't know. Like all this is kind of impressive. Like it's extremely like impressive that they build all these sets mm-hmm. out. It's extremely impressive that, he has these tiny little gags that are very good, you know, like his like keep, you know, his like a uh, walking desk, right? Like every time I saw that, I laughed. Yeah, but it wasn't, you know, that was also true of Nathan for you, where he would build these elaborate things. And I don't know, there was one discussion of it that I found interesting outside of like the, you know, is it too mean or is it manipulative type of stuff, which I actually found 
to be like kind of boring. It's just like I don't know these people signed a release and yeah. they're gonna be on TV <laughs> and like I don't I don't I like I'm I sorry. still think they're actors too. But anyway, that's just. I know right. that's the question. Are they actors? Yeah. And like the kid, was the kid an actor? Was it right. like, right. I mean, certainly some of them, like the, the, yeah. the, like it, yeah, it takes all these different levels, like especially that last episode where they're like playing oh all God. the different kids so and there's crazy. like, oh, the kid, well, actually, we're just going to have an adult man play <laughs> this five-year-old kid. <laughs> right. And then he like, they cut to him like smoking a cigarette. <laughs> You're just like, this is the most That absurd. was brilliant. <laughs> His background, though, is like in or he sort of thinks of himself as a magician comedian. Right. And that's where I just think the whole key of all this is. Right. Um, I forget who said this on Twitter or wrote an article about it. Where The idea is like all of this is like basically a magic show. And if you think about it in that context, then it makes more sense. Right. Like it is about sort of twisting some part of the brain in a way through incredibly impressive illusions and effects right and that's 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 sort of where i that's kind of where i was Mm. it's it's a new direction for magic i think more than anything else and he's the only one that can do it and so i'm glad that there's not going to be five thousand imitations of this on television right please television executives do not green light (laughs) any like bad imitations of this because it'll be like excruciating and it probably will be cruel in a type of way you know like you can see like the cruel version of this, some kid on TikTok doing and like ruining people's lives and laughing, you know, being like, ha ha, you know, like I screw this person's life up and like, isn't this person stupid and, and idiotic? Like, you know, there's there's bad iterations of this, but I don't know. I, I just kind of like it sort of washed over me, you know, um, but most television does. Well, but you liked Nathan for you better than this or you found it just more like affecting or was it because it was new? Like, what what's the comparison there for you? I just thought it was funnier. Funnier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is I, kind of dark and like This serious. is pretty dark. Yeah. yeah. And it's so extended, you know, because of Angela. It's Oh my gosh. It just goes on forever and it it's yeah. It's not like the discreet episodes of Nathan. Yeah, me. I thought it was going to be like a procedural type situation where it was like, okay, here's one person and then right. and then when that Same. guy ghosted him after like he didn't have the brother interaction that he was yeah. supposed to have and then it was just Angela a lot of Angela and then the kids and you're just like and then you know his parents are like the kid should be Jewish even though this is a whole fake scenario and you're just like what <laughs> um it's a very I don't know I I'm not like I know I ha- there's a lot of people in my life who are really into reality tv and I it's not mm. like my thing necessarily though I have watch some selling sunset and other things at points but i just like there's something about it that like bridged that even though if they're just all actors then maybe it really isn't reality tv at all is that a conversation that everyone was an actor well i i had an argument with about this with a friend who may hear this but but is that like a accusation or something are people saying that i think there's a real like debate about it as like a genre as like a category error like is this reality tv or is this not reality tv is it possible that the angelas are in fact actors of some sort i think it's being discussed to some extent my friend was adamant that this is qualifies as reality tv and it doesn't that seems like the wrong description to me huh yeah i don't whatever i watched it it was like a phenomenon for a second (laughs) yeah all right uh let's 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 do a very awkward transition here and let's uh, go to something very serious which is immigration and so like, i'm very 
I'm very excited to have this conversation because I think that like if for a little bit, at least within our small being me and Tammy's small world of the media, right? Like there is a occasion where there is some there is conversation around this again. And it's because Caitlin Dickerson, who um, you know, somebody who I admire quite a bit, uh, mm-hmm. and whose work I've always admired, uh, wrote dropped like a gigantic article. I mean, I don't know what it, what else to say, but these are the types of articles that one builds their entire career towards. And um, you just hope that an institution will give you the support to do something like this. Yeah. And it's, you know, whatever. Cool. It's great that the Atlantic did this because I thought that, you know, the sort of revelations in this article were quite impressive. And I don't even know what to what to describe it as, except that it is almost a, like it is a basically like a novella length deconstruction and investigation into what actually happened during the period of child separation or family separation at the border. How did it happen? Right. What actually happened? And these are all questions that like, I think that the public, including myself, did not really know, right? Like, because the narrative that we're fed is basically, well, there are these evil people and they did this evil thing, right? And we don't know how many kids there are, right? We don't know what exactly is happening. We don't know where they went, but this is an outrage, right? And I think all of that is correct, but the actual gears in motion are things that I don't think that we knew until this investigation. At least I personally did not know. Um, I don't know, Silky, what did you, what'd you think of this article? Um, yes, it's incredibly thorough. And I think, you know, I, it's complicated because I do think like ultimately one of the challenges we have as people who are pushing for abolition of the system and the system that detains and deports and separates children and does all these things is like, you know, showing the way that actually this is much more a bipartisan effort than anything else. And um, I think one of the challenges with the family separation framework is, oh, look at this really terrible moment in U.S. history where this thing happened. That sort of negates the fact that actually many similar things are happening kind of constantly all the time within Mm -hmm. the system. And so that's one challenge, I think that um, I think it's a really important history to tell. And the truth is, actually, many of the people that she's writing about, like John Kelly or Tom Homan or all, like all of them were working under the Obama administration, like all of them were yeah. sort of around in multiple of these administrations. So it's not new that, oh, this suddenly happened during Trump. And in fact, they were proposing these things. And when Obama brought back family detention in 2014, right. like that was a moment where this was actually on the table as a possibility. And so I thought that was an important piece of the story, but I think um, there's like a, a lot, I mean, I think, yeah. So those are, those are like my sort of initial thoughts, which is like such an important history to tell. And to some degree, like we're still in this moment around the border. That's quite, horrifying and Biden has sort of actually kind of continued on a lot of Trump policies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's being ignored because, you know, it's like the thing where you have just people are searching kids in cages all the time during that period. And now it's like not a Google search, right? Like it's right, right, right. I mean, I, you know, I will say that like, I, maybe it's just me personally. Right. But I did, I, I think I had the opposite read of, of what you were saying in terms of the effect that it had on me in terms of blaming of, blame right because i I agree with you if you 
historicize this in a way and you just say this happened in this one moment and it's not happening anymore right and these are bad people who uh created a bad outcome and now they're no longer in power and let's just look back and be glad that joe biden is in office or that the democrats are in power and that we're more humane that's a that's a catastrophe right like i think that's catastrophic but i actually don't think that was like that's not the takeaway i got from it the takeaway i got from it was just sort of like well, how much of this is still happening, you know, yeah. and how much of it started under Obama, right? And how much of it was 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 still around, right? Like, so one of the things I think we should talk about is that like, this moment, and especially in regards to your work, is this moment in 2005, right? Like when um, when the idea of, of sort of using prosecution, right, of prosecuting people who cross the border uh, first comes into comes to light and how it's extended and how it's really sort of becomes part of the the way in which people think about the border during the Obama administration, right? Um, that I think that, I, I don't know, I just think that all that sort of stuff is, it shows a continuum of almost like this bureaucracy, right? That, um, and I don't think that like there's an argument that all this was dismantled in any sort of way, but I do, I do think that some people will read it in the way that you said, yeah. Um, but I think they'll be wrong to read it in that sort of I way, think, you know? I think that's right. But I do think that there are – she definitely identifies, like, prime evil movers in the Trump administration without whom the it wouldn't have gotten to this point. Like, yes, the architecture was there right. and documenting, like, that criminalization of the border after 9-11 and into the Obama administration. Totally agree with that, Jay. But also Miller and Sessions and these guys who, you know – yeah, there's a little bit of like an Eichmann in Jerusalem kind of thing in this article, but also there is the Hitlers of that administration. Right. But, so but, but I think it's, it Stephen is a complex Miller, picture. Stephen Miller is evil. No, and that's fair. Yeah, that's like, what I mean. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. So in other words, okay. like, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. There's a nuance. I mean, look, I agree, Jay, in the sense that, yes, there, there's a bigger story being told. I think it's just a question of our ability to take in nuance or like, people who are reading this because I think still ultimately it's like, Oh, Trump's out. Things are just so much better. And, 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 and to be fair, like there are certain things that are significantly yeah. better. So right. like, I am not going to be that person who's like, Oh, everything is the same. same. Yeah, 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 you yeah, know, yeah, like, yeah, I'm just, yeah. and I think that, you know, last week was like a testament of just like, Oh, when you ask for the like maximalist demand, yeah. you actually see things happen. And I think there's this weird thing that's happening right now with Biden where he's so not a compelling target. Like people are like Obama was a compelling target. So people are just like, oh, we can do all this. We can push. And like, but the world wasn't in the place where it was. Whereas like Biden's such a bellwether yeah. that he's actually, even if it's not enough, it's never enough. It's never going to be enough, but it's something. Mm -hmm. And, but it, everyone's still just like, uh, but it's Biden. It sucks, you know. So it's this weird, confusing thing. <laughs> I know. I keep defending Biden, and like in conversations and parties, it's so uncomfortable. I know what's going on. <laughs> um, and I don't want to defend Biden because Biden yeah. on the border is horrifying, absolutely. But I think um, when it comes to the interior, or some things that are happening, that you know, things there are something like like you know, the detention system actually is shrinking under yeah. this administration for the first time in 40 years, um, right. which is significant. And I think though, yeah, I, I mean, I'm Jay, I'm definitely happy to start like the conversation about the migrant prosecutions. Cause that's actually what we're seeing yeah, like, yeah. potential ramp up of now. 
So let's let's just give a little background to the re- to the readers to the listeners here, which is just that um, it's very difficult to summarize the entire article, and I feel like everyone should read it. It will take you a few hours or a couple or an hour. That's not the most compelling way to sell, but I trust trust me, it's worth it. It's you worth know? it. It, it really quickly. is worth it, and it's yeah. like. It's well written. It's written. It. It. I think that it. Unfor- it's very hard to do these pieces about government bureaucracy totally. because, like, first of all, it involves so much reporting, and it's not easy reporting. You know, it's not like let's drive up here and describe what's happening. It's like a yeah. lot of document, FOIA stuff, which is all stuff that that Caitlin did. You know, and so, um, but it is, it is a story about how decisions get made. And how certain small, seemingly like unrelated or even like lower level people can make proposals that gain traction, right? Um, and why they gain traction. And then how uh, certain moments where like the cap comes off of everything, yes. right? Like where things can get real crazy real fast and how those crazy things can get normalized very quickly. Um, and how there's a ton of people who work in these spaces that you know i like eichmann in jerusalem is one thing i thought of like ordinary men right like yeah. that book where it's just and i'm sorry to like you know like i don't like i'm not somebody who like compares everything to hitler but like just in terms of like people <laughs> kind of being like well it's my job you know and i hope that the system saves it you know i know what i'm doing is wrong but you know like like there is probably some normalcy that's going to come come out of this because not everyone can like just stand in line the next guy will stand up and do the right thing right like there's just a lot of that you know and like that just seems to be an extremely compelling picture of what this is like it's just very hard to believe that every single person just instantly decided that putting kids in cages is okay you know but like how does stuff like this happen well people are not courageous like people sort of hope somebody else does something about it and they worry about their jobs and everything like that It's, it's so convincing to me like I'm almost positive that's what's happened right and and it is a very good telling of that story now one of the points that i found and i think is very relevant to your work silky is 2005 right so like what happens in 2005 in terms of like the change of policy on the border um yeah if if you just want to tell talk about it yeah i mean i think the So, I mean, it's hard to talk about 2005 without sort of looking at like 9 11. Yeah, yeah, right, right. right. 9 11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Go for it. Go as far back as you want. So, like, like make a cutoff around like (laughs) the U.S. Civil Wars. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go back to to 2016. No. So, I mean, I will say that the thing that's sort of interesting about that moment. So I, I'm, you know, I'm from Texas. I was organizing in Texas at the time. I was a organizer with a group called Grassroots Leadership. Um, and we were, I mean, some of the organizing I was do, doing was focused on private, the private prison industry that had just been bailed out post 9-11 to build more immigration detention centers and also these U.S. Marshals facilities. And one of the big facilities they tried to build, big big sort of jails, pretrial jails they tried to build was this thing called the Laredo Super Jail in South Texas. And this was like, I think the solicitation went up in 2004 and we started traveling to Laredo pretty regularly to try to stop and block this facility. And what, you know, I think the thing to understand is that there's sort of two components when you think about the immigration system 
and how people end up locked up. One is what people sort of understand, which is the civil detention system where somebody is going through a deportation proceeding and they are in detention awaiting a hearing on their case, appealing their case, or awaiting deportation. Um, and that's you know what happens. That's what ICE runs, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Um, on the flip side, there's this whole category of people who are incarcerated for immigration crimes, um, mostly entry and reentry. And those laws actually came into the books in 1929. So what's sort of interesting is that that was um, Kelly Lytle Hernandez has a book called City of Inmates that really sort of goes into this history that's, you know, just about how it kind of became law. And it was very much a, I mean, it was very much a deterrent strategy. All of this is about deterrence, essentially. Um, and it was prosecuted for some time, but not to, you know, a lot more Mexicans were being prosecuted at the time, but then it sort of like ebbed and flowed over time. Still not the numbers that we've seen in recent years. Um, so in the 90s, you know, people, I think like a year, there was like less than 5,000 people who were being prosecuted or um, under some of these laws. But basically in the Bush era and a strategy that was like a sort of Ashcroft era post 9-11 strategy to really push for quicker deportations, quicker and more ability to like prevent somebody from coming back because it's actually quite harder to come back if you're prosecuted. Um, they put in this program called Operation Streamline in a few different regions in the border um, where there would just be mass prosecutions. I mean, sometimes 75 people. And I, I if you've been to a Streamline hearing, um, I've been to them in Tucson. It's wild. You just like, yeah. Walk. Tell it, us what it's like. Yeah. What, so what is it like? It's so, I mean, you're, you're literally, you're just walking in and you're watching all these people, like usually young, like Mexican or Central American men, mostly Mexican um, men. And they have their like lawyers with them, but there's probably a dozen of them standing together and the judge is going through each of them and sort of like, ruling on their case and then they kind of just come in and then there's like the next batch and it just goes over and over again all day. And sometimes there's up to 75, sometimes even more a day. Um, and so it's not, I mean, that's, that's sort of the thing about all of this. I think there's this framework of like, well, and, and this is how the criminal justice system works, right? Like, right. well, if there's due process, then it's fine. Like people right. get what they deserve, but that's not, I mean, Tammy knows as a, lawyer person um like this there's like lawyer no per, lawyer person is the best way to do very it. borderline yeah um i'm i'm not a lawyer so i'll just be very explicit about that um but i am um, but i uh you know it, it it's not due process so basically what started happening is you started to see the number of people being prosecuted for entry and re-entry go up and which is why you know they were planning this they were like okay we're gonna put in operation streamline we're gonna expand the U.S. Marshal Service capacity, expand ICE capacity, all those things were happening during that period of time. And so this was this, you know, jail that we were, this super jail, 2,800 beds, Wow. Um, private jail. It ended up, we ended up losing the campaign, but it ended up being built as a 1,500 bed facility. It's a geo group facility. Um, and now I think it's closer to 1,900 in outside of Laredo. Um, 
But it was also wild because you think about it now. I mean, for me, we would, I mean, I spent a lot of time in Laredo in those years and it was not what it is now. Like we would go down there, we would do press conferences, we would meet with the bishop, we would do all the things to like, we had like an organizer working down there too. We would had this coalition that formed, you know, trying to stop this facility. And sometimes we would just like, walk across the border with our driver's licenses and like eat dinner and then come back. Like you can't do that now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what this sort of increased militarization, increased prosecution at the border, all the things that are happening that make it harder for people to come back has also increased the smuggling, the kidnapping, all the things that are happening at the border that actually make it that Mm. much more violent and difficult for people to come. And isn't Laredo one of those kind of twin border cities where it's like Nuevo Laredo Laredo. Nuevo Laredo, right? And they were like cross-border communities for like decades. And because I think what you're also talking about is it's labor regulation, right? Because like, yes, it was criminalized in 29, but it seemed like it was sort of casually. So like it would be based on a sort of convenient basis of convenience whenever labor flows were inconvenient. Right, but right. But now we're in this sort of different situation. Right, like that's how like the um, grape picking uh, like industry and up here in Northern California would always work, right? Like they, there's kind of like a wink nod type totally. of thing, which is just yeah. like, hey, can you can you relax a little bit? Right, we don't have any workers this this season, and that you know they would put the people in these kind of dormitories is a kind way to put it, I think, right, and the. And then the people would get paid out and ca- and then they'd go back, right? And that um, that it was a labor type of question because, you know, very powerful people were very dependent on these people being able to cross the border without any type of, you know, harassment or undue harassment. Now that logic in, uh, for Streamline, according to Caitlin's article, is that like, and this is the logic that you find throughout, right? And I think that the article does a great job detailing this, which is just like, we're doing this to help them, you know, like we, yeah. we don't, we, this is a deterrence so that people don't engage in, in, in risky behavior. And that is a type of logic that you saw the people who implemented this child separation at the beginning were doing. And like, I, I don't know, you know, like you can, like, it's hard to pathologize people. Right. But like, let's take them in good faith and say that this is what they actually believed. Right. Like, <laughs> um, that, the sort of stories that you hear and the specific stories that you hear of people dying in the back of trailer uh, of uh, trucks, right? For example, like these horrifying stories that you can't even imagine, right? That, um, you know, the, the guy who sort of comes up with the idea of child separation, he justifies it in the way that, um, that he says that he saw a five-year-old dead in the back of a trailer and it like really shook him because he also has a young child or had a young child at the time. And that his he was like, we can't keep having this happen. And so we have to come up with such a harsh penalty that nobody is going to do this ever again. Right. Like um, how well, how 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 like how ubiquitous is that type of logic throughout this type of uh, industry? Silky? Yeah, I absolutely think it is a lot. I mean, it, it is there. It's I mean, the, the hard thing about negotiating the deterrence frame is that often our sort of argument against it or the argument that shows up against it is like it doesn't deter which is true it doesn't like people (laughs) have moved forever they will continue moving and also in a moment of climate crisis and yeah 
economic crisis, all the things that we're negotiating. Like, right, or a civil course. war, right? Like, yeah. Which is like the big push, right? Yeah. Right. And I think, um, so yes, I do think to some degree, maybe that logic is there, but generally it's still just a sort of straightforward, like, you know, when you look at the, the immigrant rights movement is sort of a good example of this, like immigration and working on immigration in this country is about people who live here and like helping them. But actually like most of yeah. what we're trying to do is prevent people from coming. And so like, it's this weird thing where it's like, mm. well, and then, you know, even all, all the like good immigration policies that have been passed include, including like under Reagan or Hart Seller, like they had all these really harsh penalties to prevent people coming. It's like, yes, we're going to allow right. some people, we're going to allow people we're going to do amnesty for some people, but actually things are just going to get harsher for everybody else. Right, right, right. Um, and that's kind of always been it, right? So it's not that, you know, the I think that framework that you're naming, Jay, is there, but it, like mostly it's just like, we don't want more immigration. We don't want Got this, it. you know, I, I, I don't think it's necessarily, I think some people might actually believe that. And I think, you know, there's no question that when Obama brought back family detention, it was a deterrent strategy, um, but it wasn't, yeah, it, it some of it defies logic because it's it, mm-hmm. like it isn't actually going to deter people. Right, right. And it mm-hmm. actually, like it doesn't deter future people from coming if you do something to people who are currently here. It's mm-hmm. it, and it's it, I mean, it's also the logic of the criminal justice system. Right. And also it's like, of course, they're going to use more dangerous methods so they don't get caught if the penalties are harsher, right? Exactly. Like, I mean, like that can that was sort of pointed out in the article. Um, the one thing about Streamline was that it kind like to some extent, right? And I do mean like, and you know, I'm I mean to some extent, it sort of works, right? Like it like in the places that in these spots where there is harsh penalties, people do stop crossing in those spots, but then it sort of just funnels to somewhere else, right? And so like um yeah. Do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about that and like how? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, the number of I mean, Arizona, obviously, there's been so many deaths over the years. Um, people continue crossing. I think. I don't know. It's it, the numbers have gone up so much in terms of streamline. And there's no question that under the Obama administration, you saw even higher numbers than Bush because Bush was sort of like putting this stuff in place. And right. You know, I think there's this narrative like Obama, Obama was worse in a lot of ways, but it wasn't necessarily that Obama like was actively trying to like make it worse. It was just that he tried to make it more efficient and effective and it worked better as a system. And he didn't do anything good. <laughs> like, I mean, other than like DACA, which we could talk about, but like, you know, there's like a very few things that he did that was like good for the system. It all just yeah. like kind of like ballooned. And so um and is yeah. it hard it seems hard also just to um sorry to interject for just for a sec to identify it's sort of like when we talk about crime rates or something it's like hard to identify all of the factors that lead to the variation like obviously there are seasonal variations yeah. when you look at border crossing numbers um but some years are just kind of you don't it it seems just difficult to exactly know like yes there are surges of violence in like Honduras in a particular year and you might be able to link that but you know what i mean it, it it just seems hard to pinpoint like what exactly the cause is and whether it can be attributable to a particular policy change. Yeah. And it's kind of a cycle that we just constantly go through. I mean, it, when we, yeah. every, you know, I've been 
writing more and reading more about the 1980s, like detention kind of coming up. And it's just like all the stories kind of just sound the same as they do now. Like it's like Haitians are coming and there's like anti-Black racism and there's, you know, it's just like all the things are actually just, we kind of constantly go through the cycle, but the system has become harsher. So what does that impact mean um, now? And I, yeah, I do think that Jade, your point, there are like maybe now, for instance, I think there's not as much targeting happening in like the Piedras Negras area of the border. So maybe more people are coming through there versus coming through Del Rio or like that kind of thing happens. But that also like changes over time, depending on the conditions. And, Mm. you know, I, I think we're in a funny place um, because of the pandemic actually reducing numbers for so much that it's like kind of hard to read the data in the same way to know like what it's going to look like moving yeah forward. yeah it's i mean that's just true of everything at this yeah. point right yeah. like um well the reason why i wanted to talk so much about 2005 right was because it struck me that given that we are talking about 17 years basically of of what can be i i think it was always sort of a criminalized and and whatever carceral border situation right but we're like in terms of the real like sort of rubber hitting the road type of moment and like people sort of being lined up and processed quickly through the through a criminal justice system being these people being put in prisons right like we're not talking about a particularly long history here right like um and I think like what how does that sort of affect the ways in which your politics work right like as as somebody who is an abolitionist like is there more opportunity because it's kind of like you know you're like well we're not talking really about like you know everything from Foucault onwards you know? <laughs> like like there is uh is, does it make it seem more things more possible than maybe in the you know broader abolition movement I, this is something that sort of crossed my mind as I was reading through all of this and you know being familiar with your work Yeah, I mean, I will say yes, like there's no question, at least when it comes to civil detention, I think where the peace around the migrant prosecutions and the the truth is like, I, you know, I don't know what it is right now, but for many years, like half of the prosecutions that happened, like federal prosecutions that were happened were immigration related or more. And so, um, but when it comes to civil detention, I think there was an interesting thing that happened post George Floyd, you know, we had detention watch network had kind of taken on a position of detention abolition and people were like, that's crazy. Is that going to happen? I think that the, it was hard to make the case fully. Like we, I mean, we were just like, why do we do this? And we kept just being like, why do we do this? Um, But then after the summer of 2020, actually all these, like, I mean, I think the combination of like, the Black Lives Matter movement, understanding the criminal justice system better under the Obama administration. Like the, the immigrant rights movement was forced to understand the criminal legal system, like mm. because of how Obama used it. Like it before, I think people didn't really fully get the scope. And I think then there was all this like awareness raised and yeah. BLM's happening. And then in during 2020, there was this moment where because people were calling for these even bolder abolish the police abolish prisons actually ending immigration detention seemed not that far-fetched because again you you (laughs) know people are in civil detention they're not they're serving time and some a lot of people are Mm -hmm. there indefinitely um 
And so a lot of like mod more moderate immigrant rights groups kind of like came on board. And I think that has helped a lot. But similarly, I think what we've seen in efforts around reducing mass incarceration is there's other tactics. And in the case of ICE right now, the sort of like surveillance state has grown. I mean, I think there's upward almost like 300,000 people under some form of ICE surveillance right now, whether it's a ankle monitor or most mostly it's a phone app called SmartLink. And so that well, is a concern. What, is, what does the app do? The app basically tracks where people are and they have to like check in on the app and say where right, they add right. and, you know, that kind of thing. And um, some of them have like face recognition software and there's just, oh it, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a total mess of an app. Um, yeah. And so I don't know, like, like on the, on the civil detention, quote unquote, civil detention side of things, which is not, it's, it's really just they're in the civil system as opposed to criminal, but they're still incarcerated we've started to see some shrinking, which is for many years, we started like the tension would just go up and, you know, alternatives would just go up. And finally we're seeing some reduction in detention, which is important, but the level of alternatives going up is concerning on entry, re-entry, like, like that side of things where migrant prosecutions, I mean, I think there's a real question right now of what things are going to look like. The, Migrant protection protocols or the Remain in Mexico program, officially the sort of the administration has finally ended that program. So that was the policy where people had to go through their immigration proceeding on the other side of the border. So like usually people would come in and, you know, they were seeking asylum. They would be um, in the U.S. while they went through their asylum proceeding. But that policy made it so they had to do it in like camps in Mexico, which was really horrifying. Um, so th that program has ended, which is good, but Title 42, which is the policy that was put in place that Stephen Miller really kind of cooked up was like, okay, I'm going to find every yeah. single thing that's possible on immigration. And then the pandemic happened and he was like, oh, look, I can use this obscure public health <laughs> law right, from right. the, you know, half a century ago. And Put it in place and the biden administration has like actually had to keep it in place so rochelle walensky has to like renew it every three three months and the democrats because biden hesitated in stopping title 42 the democrats like the republicans used it republicans used it as like a sort of sticking point and we're like oh how can you get rid of this policy even though the way they're treating the pandemic generally is confusing to say the least um and then the Democrats have sort of become on board of like Title 42, which is concerning. So anyways, just th yeah. that is all to say that Title 42 still being in place is part of the reason why 1325, which is entry prosecutions, sort of remain low. Okay. So could you just say quickly, like why you think Biden has kept 42 in place, the public health rationale? I think this is where this sort of bigger question of like the Democrats having like very little vision when it comes to the border, like they've been in the deter deterrence game, as, as we've been talking about, like mm -hmm. post Bush, like Obama was in it. I mean, and even, you know, Clinton put in Operation Gatekeeper, like there's so much that I mean, actually so horrifying. I know they're very, they're very horrifying. Um, so there's so much that like, this is the Democrats are all in on war on crime. They're yeah. all in on deterrence policy. That's right. sort of the game. That's where I think yeah. it is. I think it's a litmus test for their moderation, right? Yeah. For, for, and, and that, yeah. 
And the Republicans have used it because they didn't take those like bold stances early on, like by March of 2021. The Republicans were like, look at what's happening on the border. Lindsey Graham was like in a boat in the Rio Grande. Like it was just right, wild. Right. What they were, <laughs> right. It was just like this performance that was happening. And the Dems had no oh way God. to respond. Like they don't, right. because of their lack of vision on this, other than, oh, we support immigrants who are workers here in the U.S. Like that, who are good people, quote unquote, yeah. who are the hardworking, good the good ones. Right, right. The that's good like, ones. that's their immigration narrative. That's They're all they like, care about. Prop, at, the, the, at the most, they'll prop up like two angelic DACA recipients and they'll be like, you know, like what they're yeah, there's like war veteran, <laughs> you know, like right. it's just like a very right. 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 he's now like a it's like, like a, a Harvard me- grad, he's like a, a medical work. school at Johns Hopkins, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's about uh. it, right? Um, it's it is interesting though, like because I want to talk a bit a little bit about like political landscape on all of this, right? Which is just and I think that um you know like Title Four Two definitely plays into this, but it's just like all right, well what are what's uh what what's happening here because um. This is not, this is like, when you see people, it's always sort of confusing, right? Because like you have these lists of what people's political priorities are, right? And number one right now is still, is always inflation, right? It's always the economy. (laughs) And then there's like a little bunch of stuff that's all bunched together. And it's something like, you know, like, uh, I don't know, healthcare or whatever, but like, I feel like recently democracy like is showing up closer <laughs> oh, yeah, to the yeah, top, yeah, which yeah. is yeah. interesting. But so. immigration is always much higher than one would hope it would be, right? Like it's always higher. So, and so people will be like, immigration is the third most important thing. We're just like, listen, all these are separated by like two percentage points on a fucking opinion <laughs> poll. It's not real. And also like the only thing that's real is that the only thing people care about is gas prices and inflation, you know, which is like we already knew that, you know, I mean, like, but. Like, it makes no difference that immigration is third. It could be 10th, and it would be the exact same thing, right? Like, in terms of, like, what you can actually glean from one of these things. And yet it does seem like the general sort of political climate right now is basically like, hey, we got to control this border, right? Like, it is not a time in which, like, there's a great groundswell of of uh, support for immigrant rights right now. Like, do, is, is that, do you think that's, like, a true – is that a true statement? Yeah, I mean, I think one challenge is that at least this sort of iteration of the immigrant rights movement, which I would say is the 2006 and on iteration, which came out of the sort of post Sensenbrenner fight. um, The big, huge marches of that year. The huge marches of that era, where then it was like, oh, we really need a pass because, you know, Bush was going to pass a bill and then 9-11 happened and then, you know. Mm All the things. Um, but the 2006 on era, and, and it's not to say that there has, you know, there's been movement, immigrant rights movement work, and especially in California around Prop 187, there's so much work that has happened mm-hmm. in the past, but at least in this iteration where it's like, we want to pass a bill, it's post like 80s, quote unquote, amnesty bill that happened, um, which is the Immigration Reform and Control Act in 1986. And so there was this like, okay, we need another round of some sort of legalization. And that was all that movement. I mean, in in many ways, the immigrant rights movements, like framework is really about passing this one bill or passing a bill for legalization and, you know, or some other relief, whether it was DACA or temporary protection status, TPS or something else. Mm -hmm. Um, 
People call it comprehensive immigration reform, I guess. That's the <laughs> generic term, right? Yes, CIR. the CIR. Which Nobody is, knows what it means, but... But on the comprehensive immigration... CIR, <laughs> the, the framework is like, here's some good stuff with a bunch and of bad stuff. Enforcement, right. Yeah. And that's what IRCA was. That's what Hart Seller was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's like the thing. Like you... that That's how this goes. I mean, although like 96, we had just really, really a lot of bad stuff passed on immigration yeah. and not any good things. Um, but I think that... This, you know, both in terms of the movement on the ground and what people are wanting to see, which is legalization, and also the funding that has gone into this movement has been invested in a bill that gets legalization. Like that is the gold standard. That's what it is. Like literally somebody said that to me recently, um, who's sort of in that world. And I think the enforcement side of things that has had some wins that we've had more wins and the, the sort of like abolish ice moment that came out of that family separation moment was something that really formed, especially under like post nine 11, but under the Obama administration around his use of the criminal justice system to target immigrants. And that has been quite successful, especially at the state level, local and state level in places like New Jersey and California that have huge immigrant populations. But the movement, you know, like nationally, it's, yeah, it, it, it's sort of a mixed bag, but still there's like very little funding. There's very little resources going to that part of it. And then when you look at the border, which is, it's like a lot of humanitarian aid. It's like very much more of a charity mindset than like a justice mindset. And so mm-hmm. it's not organizers. It's not groups that are necessarily, I mean, there are groups on the border that are trying to do that work, but they're also just trying to survive. And so there's not like, resources funding going into power building at the border to like have resilient border communities and push back against this narrative and there isn't an on the ground movement that is like a huge i mean there is, there is to some degree and i'm not you know i don't want to dismiss the important work that's happening but it's not the level to that is like the movement that's just like we want to get a legalization bill yeah right well but- and you had linked us to a recent poll that said that most Americans think that there is like a quote unquote invasion at the border. So when Jay was talking, I was just thinking like, I don't think actually most Americans are sitting around thinking about immigration that much, but then when they are asked about immigration, it's always this extremely hysterical version that actually doesn't correspond to reality. And so as a politician, I think that's, I mean, we can say so many reasons why the Dems are stuck in this like ridiculous position around immigration, but I think it's also that it's like, the only feedback they get is like this extremely negative feedback. And then as you were saying, there's a little bit of like a gap in terms of the kind of movement politics around it too. Right. Right. I, I, it's, it's, I think, I don't know this invasion stuff, right? Like it's hard to even know what to think about it. Right. Or great replacement theory, right? Like where it's like, all right, this stuff is obviously toxic, conspiratorial and awful. Right. And Mm -hmm. like, it certainly has, driven bad things like what happened in Buffalo, right? Like where, although it's very hard to know how much of that manifesto is just copy and pasted or whatever, but let's just take it on face. It keeps value. coming up though. Right. Yeah. Um, I actually, like I was in this elevator in Las Vegas, right? And it was kind of crowded elevator. It was very crowded weekend in Las Vegas. And this guy, this woman asked this like kind of like, you know, older, overweight gentleman. Um, 
well, you know, how's it going? And then he was, he sort of looked at me and then he was like, it's too crowded this weekend. And then I was like, well, look, I agree with it. It's way too crowded this weekend, but like, where's this going? And then he started screaming about invasion. You know, he's like, everyone's invading Las Vegas. You know, it's oh, an wow. invasion. And I just Were you the only Asian in the, in the elevator? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, there are other people who weren't, I think there's yeah. one other non-white person. But I just started laughing, you know, because I was just like, what the fuck is this? Like, what is wrong with this man? He's just like screaming in this elevator about how Las Vegas is being invaded by Arizona and California, you know, but I could catch this up. Good Lord. Anyway, he gets off the elevator and he screams, invasion. And I just lost it laughing. I was like, this dude is so fucking pathetic. It's like a weird way to like process change. It's like, look, the world is changing around us and now we're going to like think it's an invasion of I know it was funny because I was like I kind of wanted to like there was part of me that was like at the beginning I was like it is too crowded why is it so crowded this weekend and then it was just like oh no actually he's just being racist (laughs) (laughs) he looked at you I love that (laughs) yeah I was like and then you know whatever I don't know. People respond to these things in different ways, but my my response is usually when it's that ridiculous, I just find it kind of <laughs> funny. I'm just like, I'm sorry, dude, that you're gonna fucking be mad oh, about this for the next three hours. But I, it seems to be like it's hard for me to tell, you know, how much people actually care because things like polls like this, if you ask somebody, they will express an opinion on it. You know, but they might not care that much. But they might not care right. that. But if much, you ask right? them literally using the word invasion, they may right. <laughs> right. response you... that is negative. <laughs> there's also so much. It's interesting. I mean, there's so much more coverage of immigration. Like there, you know, like it just mm. like there was very pre-Trump. You know, there's coverage of immigration, but like the degree to which there's so much more. Yeah. Not unlike all all media, not just like liberal media or whatever. And I, I don't that term is silly but you know what i mean like there's just yeah. a lot more coverage generally of because he made it a priority he made it a priority yeah. so there's priority so right at a time when nobody else cared about it right, right? like he, was, he just was sort of was like opportunistic use right? he was it. like well i'm just gonna make it an issue right because it's i can be racist about it and people will like me for that and just right. like you know like well, um, i was curious yeah. if you guys had thoughts on so one of the things for me and caitlin's reporting that was weirdly the most affecting was there's this passage that talks about how when Kirsten or sorry, when Kristen Nielsen was in the administration in the Bush administration, um, you know, Homeland Security was very small. And then when she comes back in under Trump, it's 250,000 people. Oh, yeah, and yeah. to your our earlier discussion about like bureaucracy, it also reminded me of a conversation we had with Danny Bessner a few months ago, where we were talking about the growth of the regulatory state and how it sets up these sort of barriers for, you know, normal people to feel engaged with the system, to feel that they can sort of pierce like policymaking and also for, you know, some of this stuff to just have its kind of own self-sustaining energy because of the growth of bureaucracy basically and dhs to me is like the avatar of that because we talk about abolishing ice but really it this whole thing of dhs just basically containing like a whole world of agencies you know it just makes it i just didn't like i just wonder how you think about that silky like in your work because it's such a gargantuan agency it has so many vested interests and that makes it seem like it's that's why you can have a situation like this under Trump, where you have a couple of evil people sort of dictating stuff and then like using this kind of like inertia that's built into the system. Um, yeah, I mean, that is true. Names. The inertia piece, like I, I, in so many ways, like it's compa- I mean, 
Caitlin writes it in a very compelling way, but it's like kind of the banality of evil. Like this exactly. is just sort of how right. it works. Like the system just sort of reproduces itself and becomes this like gargantuan thing. And I think the creation of DHS was a very, it was both like intentional and unforeseen sort of the like conglomeration of power that happened under the agency yeah. and like what it was going to do and how it was going to operate. I mean, it was, it's always sort of been a mess of an agency and a lot of what we've been able to do over the year, you know, during the, the like aughts, I guess, during the the Bush mm-hmm. years, nobody knew where their people were in detention. Like they they didn't have like a list. We had no idea where detention centers were. In fact, like DWN Jeez. detention watch networks list was like, like we had a map and we were, basically researching with lawyers and law school, like whatever, we did everything we could to find data about every detention center. And so that people could find their clients or their loved ones. And, you know, one of the first things Obama did in the first couple of years was create this thing called the online detainee locator system, the locator system, ICE locator system, essentially, um, to help wow. find somebody. And it doesn't work great, but it's something. And all of us were like, wow, look, they did this. And it just it sort of Jeez. shows you what a mess the agency. I mean, they could sort of function like black sites. So you had this moment yeah. where you, you didn't know anything. And a lot of what we've been able to do is get more transparency. But the system just sort of like grows and grows despite that mm-hmm. transparency. And the budget stuff, I think, is really relevant here because a lot of what we've seen, and this happened during all the administration since is like, well, these are the problems. We need more funding and that's how we're going to make this better. We need more agents. We need more detention beds. Um, Oh, detention conditions are bad. Like, well, we need more funding for this. You want me to have like 34,000 beds, no matter what, like I need to make this a better system. And that's what Obama essentially did. Um, And so I think in many ways, like, yeah, it's just sort of like, built upon this self. And, and I think why it's so significant that we've been able to finally see some reduction in detention is that it was, there was like, no, I mean, it feels hard with the like defund the police framework and all the other frameworks around defund to actually see those shifts. But, you know, there's one, there's one thing where we thought we could maybe see some shift in these agencies under Obama, but it feels that much harder now. And I think yeah. there needs to be you know, if you have more agents, and that this is true of, you know, the funding going to streamline, but the funding go to Border Patrol. If you have Border Patrol and more agents, they're going to target more people for prosecution. That's just sort of yeah. how it works. Right, right. Um, totally. I, one thing, like, one thing I wanted to ask you, which, you know, has always, has sort of been on my mind for a bit, was, like, we did, and we talked about it a little bit before, but, I like, we had this moment of incredible outrage, right, because um, in a few years ago, right around child separation. And um, we had all sorts of activity around abolish ice. We had actual street actions, you know, where people would block ice from deporting people, right? Like if you remember that. And a lot of that did occur online, right? And one of the things that I've, at least the thing that is most interesting to me these days is basically just trying to assess like what is happening between the relationship between uh, of things that are huge, huge events if you look on social media or if you pay any attention to the news or if you even go out into the streets during one of these moments of protest and the actual sort of things that happen from them, right? Like, like what does it mean to have these massive flashpoints that end up feeling always a bit ephemeral in terms of, you know, you're sort of on to the next thing, right? And so 
Um, and this is not a criticism of these movements or the people behind them in any sort of way, but that it, what seems to be true right now is that like you have these things that have always been issues and have always had people behind them and they almost have this moment in the sun, right? And they just like blow up into worldwide stories and then they kind of dissipate and the people who were always working on this issue are kind of, they're in a place where they might have more funding or whatever, but they're kind of still just the only people around, right? Like it's like you have a party with your roommates and then at the end you're like, well, it's us again, <laughs> you know, is that, and that things can change, right? And this might end up being a testament, like some people would say, and I think that this is somewhat true, that there's, this is a testament to how entrenched the powers that are in this sense, like how hard it is to fight against them. And I think that's true. But I think there's also part of it that is just like, look, these mass like sort of online social media inspired movements, like they're not, they're not doing what they're supposed to do in terms of the proportion of size of attention and actual change, right? Like maybe attention is not worth that much, right? And so like, what, what is the, what's sort of like the postmortem then of that moment of like, yeah where it really was the biggest story in America for weeks and weeks and weeks, right? And um, the there was never a point where I think more people were angry at the Trump administration than that moment, right? Like it was the moment when people really began to say that this is a fascist state, right? And that even moderate yeah. people, like, I don't know, the idea of separating someone from their child, it's something that like you can be like, you can be pretty racist and like pretty pretty terrible person and it'll still affect you you know like you, you'll still get mad about that and so i don't know where where are we after all of that it's a really good question um you know i would say the muslim ban moment was also one right. that really right. catalyzed people but the thing about both family separation and the muslim ban versus the summer of 2020 and the george floyd era protests um is that there's a it's sort of going back to the point I was making, not just about the Democrats, but also about the movement. Like there is a lack of vision and demand within the immigrant rights movement. That meant that the only response that people could come up with was we need lawyers. Or (laughs) abolish ICE, right? Yeah. Yeah. And abolish ICE. Yeah. It was like abolish ICE, which is if you read the whole um, Caitlin Dickerson article, like the truth is, yes, like ICE is a component of what happened right. in 2018, but actually so much more of what uh, was happening right. was exactly. under DOJ right. with U.S. attorneys and like migrant prosecution. So it's like the U.S. Marshal Service and other entities were much more involved in mm-hmm. that. And so it was like this confusing thing where it was like ICE is the problem, but it's actually like, no, there's this whole other system that actually is doing this. And so that's confusing and telling that story was hard to do in that moment. Um, But again, it became lawyers are going to be the savior. And that's true. And, you know, it was like the post Trump election. It was like ACLU got the most donations of like any it was like litigation and direct service is the only thing we can do. And there was this lack of understanding of building power of like both the sort of like organizing work that happens on the ground that brings people together that has actually got us to a lot of the wins that we see now on detention um versus and i you know i think there's a confluence of things usually when we're getting to this place but when you look at the summer of 2020 there's a long history especially around abolition and 
prison and police abolition and things for people to tap into to understand the work that they could do um, that was there for them. And it's not true that every single person who went out in the streets is like engaged in that movement now. But the truth is there are so many more people engaged in a movement around defund and abolition than there was prior to that summer. Whereas when you look at 2018, I think there are people who are engaged and are making bolder demands, but I don't think there's like, you know, like I think some of the movement post-Trump has waned for sure. And that sort of energy. And I think people are also just tired and it's been hard to kind of keep the momentum going post-Trump. Um, so I think that, you know, I think those catalyst movements or moments are just so critical to engaging people, but for us as organizers, as people who are trying to bring people in, we need to be as prepared as possible for those moments. And I think, you know, like the, the hysterectomy story that happened at the Irwin County Detention Center in Georgia I mean, I remember, you know, like our, we work with the folks who put that whistleblower report out and they, they just sort of like flagged it. They were just like, oh, we're putting out this report. It's about COVID and stuff. And we're oh, like, yeah, cool. yeah. we'll like promote this. Like, great. Like, <laughs> and then we had no idea the, like what right, it was right, going to become right. and we weren't wow. quite prepared. And I think that is, you know, so I think there's like, like, what are the on-ramps for people in those moments and how can we make sure that they're for people to come into them and not just that, but also what's the vision? Because yeah. if there's clarity about vision, as opposed to, well, if this person has a lawyer, things will be okay, which all of us know is not true. Like we need to like really think about how to, what is, what are we building power towards? Are we building like in, at least in the detention context, our strategy has been, you know, local and state strategies, like shut down facilities at the local level. Cause so much of detention is based on like the system existing, like, they can release people anytime. So it makes it an easier argument, but, and then state level, like winning California and New Jersey actually creates a bottleneck for ice. And that means that they can't execute their plan in the same way. And then that has an impact on the federal budget. So like, how do we kind of make all those things happen together? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great answer. Yeah. Cause I was, I don't know. It's, uh, that 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 the story that you told about the hysterectomy story is like it just seems so like believable to me because yeah. you never really know. Well, we didn't you know? know the story was right. in there. I don't think they really, you know, like right. it's You're like, just like things are so horrifying. Yeah. Right. And then there's one thing that it almost up. feels like the public's outrage sometimes and is like almost random, right? And yeah. um, you just have to like put out as many things so that maybe one thing will catch on. And yet, like, it's, it's, it is interesting to me. I just feel like, cause I was thinking about it in terms of like, uh, you know, like this, this is obviously less important, but this Deshaun Watson story in the NFL, right? Where this guy is going to get paid to and play. He got like 11 game suspension. He has like something like 25 credible accusations against him. He, um, for yeah. sexually, sex, I, I think that the, the official blanket term would be like sexual misconduct against massage therapists. And, um, the NFL find found that it, all the allegations were credible and, you know, like uh, there's the players association obviously is fighting for him to get no suspension. And then he ends up with like a 11 game suspension or whatever. And that people are mad about this. Right. And there's talk about the boycott. And this is a huge story because the NFL is obviously like huge story. But it's like, I feel like, so the question is like, is the amount of attention that's now put on things in these moments, right? Like, is it, is it 
huge flashes that slowly build, right? Like towards something, right? Like where more people will be, obviously more people will become interested in what's happening at the border because of what ha- this huge flashpoint, right? And that perhaps the n- number that stick is small, right? Like a small percentage, but it's still better than zero, right? Or, um, yeah. and is that the way to think about it? Or is there something that about it that actually is kind of deactivating because people feel like the point is to create these big moments. And um, I don't know. I don't know the answer to it, right? Like, I, I can see it both ways. I mean, but, there's an ebb and flow. But, right. you know, it's like what happened last week with the cancel student debt. Movement. It's like that you can probably, you should be able to draw a through line between, like, Occupy Wall Street and us getting to that moment. Like, right. there's yeah. no right. question. So I think that's the thing. I think in our one the us is like pathologically historical so there's like not a sort of understanding of how things like move in a certain way but like or the you know yes things need to move quicker but and and i think it's hard i think right now for us both detention watch network and the movement in general to talk about the wins because there's all this other horrible stuff happening right. and so people are like everything else is horrible so but it's it's like you have to talk about the wins. And similarly with mm-hmm. cancel student debt, it was like, this is not enough. It's certainly not going to be enough. Like we know that, but the fact that it happened means something. Yeah. Um, and so I, like, I don't oh, yeah. know if that totally answers your question, Jay, but I do feel like we, you know, it's like, what can we learn from those moments? How do we continue to have on ramps? How do we continue to give the resources to the plate, you know, to grassroots organizing? And then how do we, not just give the resources there, but also how do we translate what's happening on the ground to the administration or to the decision makers that are going to have, you know, like, I think that's also a piece of it that both sometimes we depend on the media to do it, but I think there's other ways that we can do it as well. And so, you know, it requires a lot of like sophisticated and nuanced thinking to like move through that, which is not the easiest, but we need more people who have like space and time to do that. Right, right. Or if you look at the other side and look at the, you know, anti-abortion movement, then, you know, it's like a model for a very slow, um, you know, accumulation. Slow and steady. Yeah, I just, I always feel like the thing that people should always remember is, and this struck me when I took a trip to Montgomery, um, Alabama, which is that like the bus boycott was 13 months, you know? Like that's yeah. 13 months where people did not have transportation, had to like do carpools, had to like sort of endure back. Like it's like, you know, like I don't know. And sometimes I just think that maybe the quick satisfaction of blowing up a media story has allows, you know, it's hard for, it's easier for people to like forget that. Like the great boycott was like five years, you know? And so like, uh, And it's the not giving up because you lose along the way and you're going to lose. Like in the instance of New Jersey where we had this, you know, many years of fighting to get this contract at the Hudson County jail where a lot of New Yorkers would end up Mm -hmm. ended. And in fact, like during the pandemic, they they renewed the contract for 10 years, despite initially saying they were going to end it. And 100 people were on this like Zoom city council or county council meeting. Um, or freeholders, because it's New Jersey, um, <laughs> meeting where they basically were like, close down this place. Everybody is saying, stop doing this. And they renewed it because of revenue. But then, 
like abolish ICE, New York, New Jersey just became such a like nuisance for the freeholders and for the system that they were just like, okay, actually, we're going to stop detaining immigrants here. So it's like, you know, you have these moments where like you lose and you can just give up or you can say, okay, we've lost this part of the fight. What's the next part of the fight that we can fight for? And then New Jersey actually like they're they passed state legislation saying we're not going to detain people anymore. Um, it's such a good reminder, I think, of what you're saying, of just that even something that is federally run, the pressure points are local. Yeah. And I think that's actually really encouraging. Right. That's it, that's the it's other hard thing. to have hope about it, you know, and you think it's just this monster DHS. But yeah, showing up at a freeholders meeting like I can do that. Yeah. 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 Uh, and also yeah. like that the local actions do are the ones that ultimately can. Yeah. Can you can actually have a win sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. whereas like. And if you do that in a lot of places, it forces the federal government. And so that's sort of the argument that we make. And and still, this is my thing. I get I get Biden being an annoying target, but it's like he's here. He's a target. It's it's something like we have to try. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, well, let's end on that positive note then. Um, Okay, thank you for it. I mean, I actually think it's quite a positive note. Um, I mean, like within like the actual, you know, like of a realistic framework i mean that's the best we can hope for it's not it's not a bad thing to hope for you know like it's uh it certainly feels energizing to me so thank you for coming on again um if you uh yeah and thank you all for listening to our show if you'd like to help us out you can help us out at patreon which is patreon.com slash ttsg pod or goodbye.substack.com uh, you can get access to our Discord and a whole bunch of, well, not a whole bunch of other stuff, you know, but we're going to start doing bonus episodes and things like that again. And so there is actually more incentive now to uh, subscribe. So, okay, like, uh, is there like, or is there anything you want to promote at the end of the show? Like, you know, not uh, that's such a bad way to ask it because obviously everyone's going to say no. But like, if people want to <laughs> find you, like, how do they find you and tell us about any of the projects that you have coming up? Yeah, um, well, definitely, you know, I, I guess I'm on Twitter, Arlo, this summer, I haven't been tweeting much, um, but I'm at SilkyS13. But I, you know, Detention Watch Network is a national coalition. So we work with groups all across the country. And there's a lot of different ways for people to get involved. Like, there are might be a detention center in your community or something that's close by. Um, or people probably already usually whenever people want to get involved and work in there's usually people probably already doing it. So we can help you kind of like find mm-hmm. those people if people are interested. And um, it's at detentionwatchnetwork.org. Feel free to reach out to us. But it's always wonderful to be on the show. I'm a big time to say goodbye fan. Thank you. All right. On that <laughs> even more positive note, uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>